here this morning. I took the battery out of my microphone to check it to make sure it had plenty of juice. And I put it in backwards. It had plenty of juice. And now it's working right, right? All right, Matthew chapter 27. We're going to take a little bit of a break today from our study of Romans. If you've been here with us for a while, you know that we're really close to wrapping up this two-year-long study of this epic letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome. We've seen so much about the gospel. Uh, We've learned so much. It's been so good for our hearts and our souls. In fact, I want to invite you back next week. Come back next week and for the next couple of weeks and uh, wrap up this study with us with a great celebration about three weeks from today as we finish this study and move on to something new. Uh, But today, We're going to step away from that a little bit, focus all of our attention on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That's why we're here to celebrate today, right? Because he is risen, risen indeed, and we want to celebrate that today. I was in a meeting uh, a couple weeks ago with a bunch of pastors from the area, from different backgrounds and denominations, and we had some business to talk about, some things we had to do. And then once the meeting was over, we were just kind of sitting around chit-chatting. And one of the pastors asked this question. He said, hey... Any of you guys got any good ideas about what to preach about on Easter Sunday? And I just about choked and quickly responded with, yeah, there's this great story about God made flesh and then he died on the cross for our sins and they buried him and then he rose again. Like, let's, let's preach on that on Easter Sunday morning. And uh, all the other guys that were sitting around the table jumped in too, giving this one fella a hard time. Uh, but we all knew what he really meant by that. He, he didn't mean w- what... What should I preach on Easter Sunday? He meant, how should I preach it? Uh, Because that's always the the struggle on Easter Sunday morning. We want to tell the same story we tell every year on Easter Sunday. In fact, it's really the same story we tell every Sunday when we get together. And so the question is not, on Easter Sunday, what will we preach? Clearly, we will preach about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. The question is, how are we going to tell that story? And are we going to look for some clever new way? Or are we going to ask God to show us something brand new from the scriptures? Or are we just going to go back and just tell the story again? Well, as I sought the Lord over the last month about how to preach on Easter Sunday morning this year, um, I think he answered that prayer in Sunday school about three weeks ago. In Sunday school about three weeks ago, we looked at a passage in Acts chapter 1. After Jesus had died for our sins, they buried him, and he was raised the third day. He spent about 40 days with his disciples. You remember this in Sunday school? 40 days with them, teaching them and encouraging them and worshiping uh, together with them. And then, on that 40th day, he was taken back up into heaven. You remember that scene? He's received back up into heaven in a cloud. And if you remember, all the disciples, they just stand there for a while. They stand there, gazing up into heaven, and some angels show up, and they say to them, Why are you looking up into heaven like this? He's going to come back in the same way he left. And the implication is, you guys need to get to work and do what he told you to do. Well, that question of why really stood out to me. In Sunday school that day, the question of why are you standing there looking up into heaven, that stood out to me. And so as I began to study uh, the Easter story once again, like we do every year, I found that that question comes up a number of times. In the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the question, why, comes up over and over and over again. And I think that that's the question that we need to wrestle with today. We know what happened, right? We know how it happened. We know when it happened. We know where it happened. But maybe what we need to ponder together today is, why did all of this happen? And there are at least four places in the scripture where that question is specifically asked. That one in Acts chapter 1 is the last one we'll look at today. Why do you stand there gazing into heaven? But I want us to start in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. So if you have your Bible, turn there. 
on your app or whatever, or grab a Bible from the pew rack right in front of you, turn to Matthew chapter 27, and let's see what God's Word uh, says to us about why all of this took place. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 45, says this, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's pray together. God, we come before you today in the name of the resurrected Lord Jesus, the one who conquered death and sin and the grave, the one who lives forevermore as Savior and Lord of our lives. We come to you in his name, by his power, by his authority, in his righteousness, not, not by our own power or authority or our righteousness, but, but in him we come to you. And we ask that you'll help us today to understand. Help us to see why this happened. Help us, help us to know not just the story, but the purpose of it all. And help us to live our lives in response to this central message of the scriptures. That Christ died for our sins. And that he was buried. And that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. Help us to live our lives in response to that great truth today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this text in Matthew chapter 27 is where Jesus is hanging on the cross. And and he says... In, in the course of the gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, he says seven different things. There are seven sayings of Jesus while he's on the cross, and this is one of them, and I think it's a really important one, and there are at least a couple of things we need to see in this. First is most obvious, that when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What we see is that this is the moment where Jesus bears our sins. We, we know that Jesus lived a life without sin, Right? He never committed any sin, never broke any rules, never broke any laws, never did anything that was wrong. Right? We also know that the scripture teaches that the wages of sin is death. That death and sin are linked together. So if Jesus never sinned, then why is Jesus dying on the cross? Well, the key to all of this, the key to the whole message of the gospel is an idea called substitution. Jesus is dying as our substitute. He is taking our sin as if it was his own. God is counting our sin to Jesus' account. And Jesus is suffering the consequences, not of his sin, but of your sin and my sin. Jesus is suffering the separation, the wrath, and the death that is due to us as our substitute. Sometimes I talk about this with reference to my children. I have five children, and oftentimes they do things that are wrong. And most of the time, all of them are doing something wrong, right? But there are rare occasions where only one of them is breaking the rules. And that one deserves to be punished. Never once has another one of those kids, a brother or a sister, stepped in and said, Dad, I know Sophie deserves the punishment today. She deserves the spanking. But because I love her so much... I want you to spank me instead of her and, in fact, take her onto the Dairy Queen and reward her. (laughs) It's never happened, and I don't anticipate it ever will. But on an infinitely greater scale, that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. He has stepped in and taken the punishment that we deserve. And so for the first time in all of eternity, the Son says to the Father, Why have you forsaken me? 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why has the Father forsaken the Son at this point? Because He is stepping into our place and taking what we deserve. We deserve the separation. We deserve the forsaking. But Jesus steps in and takes it for us. Scripture says in Isaiah, All we, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, right? This is talking about sin. The good news is, it says, but the Lord has caused the iniquity, the sin, the bad stuff of us to fall on him, that is Jesus, right? So all of our bad stuff placed on Jesus and by his stripes, by his scourging, by his death, by his punishment, we are healed. This is good news of the gospel, right? So when we look at this first question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? For us. In our place. As our substitute. There's another interesting thing going on in this statement. As Jesus hangs there on the cross and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually trying to call our attention to Psalm 22. Back in Jesus' day, the Psalms didn't have numbers. They didn't have numbers. We wouldn't refer to it as Psalm 22. But if someone wanted to say, Hey, check out Psalm 22. That's what I'm talking about here. They would quote the first line of it. If you wanted to draw someone's attention to a psalm, you would simply quote the first line of it. Like if I said, the Lord is my helper, I shall not want. Psalm 23, right? You would know to turn there. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first line of Psalm 22. It's as if as he hangs on the cross, he's saying, hey, everybody... Check out Psalm 22. If you want to know what's going on here, you need to read Psalm 22 because it explains this whole thing as I hang here on the cross. And Psalm 22 is all about substitution. It's all about a sacrifice. It's all about one suffering in our place. And there is this one moment in Psalm 22 that will absolutely blow your mind if you study it closely. At one point in the psalm, he says, but I am a worm and not a man. I am a worm and not a man. I had an Old Testament scholar one time teach through this, and he said that word for worm there is a really specific type of worm. It's not an earthworm. It's not an inchworm. It's a big, fat, bloody worm. A big, fat, bloody worm that people would take, and they would smash them. They would smash those bloody worms up, and they would let their blood and guts and all that goo drip down into a jar, and with the stuff that came out of that crushed worm, they would make an invaluable dye that would be used to clothe kings and noblemen and rulers. And the psalmist says, I'm a worm and not a man. Jesus being crushed like that worm. And what is coming out of him is invaluable. What is coming out of him, the blood that Jesus shed for us, is worth more than you can imagine. And it is used to clothe us. His blood is used to clothe us and make us, as as John says in Revelation, a kingdom and priests to our God. That's pretty cool, right? So there's a lot going on when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We want to see first that it's about substitution. He died for us. Jesus took our sins as if they were his own. Jesus suffered the consequences of those sins, that is separation, wrath, and death that we deserve. He was our substitute. Jesus died for us. Why? Jesus died for us. The next passage I want you to turn to is Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and we're going to stay there a couple of times. Interestingly enough, you studied this in Sunday school, if you came to Sunday school this morning. This passage was the key text in our Sunday school lesson, and it is incredible. 
Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 10. This is what God's word says here. It says, but on the first day of the week, that's Sunday, at early dawn they came to the tomb bringing spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said, Why? Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned to the tomb from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and also the other women who with them were telling these things to the apostles. Studied this in Sunday school, right? Looked at this great scene, Easter Sunday morning, crack of dawn. These women are carrying perhaps hundreds of pounds of spices. Some of the other gospel writers give us a little more detail into what they're bringing to the tomb. But it's not like they've got a pocket full of spices. It's not like they've got a pocket full of stuff. It would have taken all of their energy and all of their strength to bring all this stuff to the tomb of Jesus. And they're headed there to do what? To worship the risen Savior? To celebrate the empty tomb? No, they are going there with the full expectation to give Jesus a proper burial. They are not expecting him to be alive. They are expecting his body to be in that tomb. They are not anticipating what they're about to encounter. And the text says when they get there and they see the tomb is empty, they're perplexed. They're perplexed. They don't really understand. And it seems like that's a common thread throughout all the gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection. There is not a single person who hears about the resurrection and says, I told you so. I knew it all along. No one is running to the tomb Easter Sunday morning because they think that Jesus is alive. The only guys that run to the tomb Easter Sunday morning are Peter and John. And it's because they've heard that Jesus is alive and they don't believe it. And they want to go see for themselves. So no one is anticipating this. And when it all comes together for them... Every single time they understand that Jesus has been raised from the dead, they are amazed. And as I think about that, I wonder if we have any of that. We talked about this in our Sunday school class this morning. That none of them were anticipating the resurrection. And when they found out about it, they were shocked and amazed. And we come in this room every week. And we talk about the resurrection every week. Maybe we come in this room once a year and we talk about the resurrection once a year. But it doesn't shock us. It doesn't amaze us. We've lost our sense of wonder and we need to regain it. That's part of why we do this on Easter Sunday morning. We want to regain our sense of wonder about the resurrection. That he's alive, right? He is alive. The tomb is empty. He is not here. He is risen. And that's incredible. There's no one, no one else that can say that. Sure, there are other people in Scripture that were raised from the dead, but you could go to all of their tombs today and they're dead still. Or again. But you cannot go to the tomb of Jesus and find his body. Laura went there a few months ago. The place at least they think that he was buried. Was there a body there? No, there's no body there because he's alive. So these women get there. The angel says, he is not here. He is risen. But the question they ask, the angels ask this question in verse 5. Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Don't you love that? 
You're in the wrong place, ladies. You're in the wrong place. If you're looking for Jesus, you don't go to the cemetery. If you're looking for Jesus, you don't go to the grave. If you're looking for a dead man, that's the perfect place to go. But if you're looking for a living man, do you go to the cemetery? I run through the cemetery every once in a while because there's no traffic there. It's a good place to run. No traffic there. I never run into anybody in the cemetery. Not anybody alive, at least. If I'm looking for living people, I don't go hang out at the cemetery. You only go to the cemetery to look for a dead man, and Jesus is not a dead man. Jesus is not a dead man. And these angels, these angels confront these women about that. The angel's perspective is, what in the world are you thinking? You're in the wrong place. This is the place for dead people. And Jesus is not a dead man. And I love that the angels go on and they say, and you shouldn't be shocked at this. He told you about this. Don't you remember back in Galilee? He said the Son of Man will be crucified, the Son of Man will be buried, and the Son of Man will rise on the third day. He told you all of this. You should not be surprised about it. And then the next part of the text says, and then they remembered. You ever feel like that? I told you, and I told you, and I told you, and, I, and then you remembered. Maybe today will be that day for you. Maybe today will be that day for us. Maybe this story that we've been told and told and told, today the lights will come on and we'll remember. So they ask, why do you seek the living one among the dead? Why would we look for Jesus among the dead? We wouldn't because he lives. We sing about that, right? We don't sing a song that says he lived, he lived, Christ Jesus lived a long time ago. What do we sing? We sing, He lives. He is alive. He rose in victory over sin and death. Why would we look for the dead among the, uh, the living among the dead? He lives. He rose in victory. Skip on down to Luke chapter 24, verse 36. Same chapter, another scene. It's a little later, probably Sunday afternoon. The scene with the women is early in the morning. This is probably in the afternoon, just before the sun goes down. Verse 36 says, while they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. He said to them, why, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Did you love that scene? This is later on Sunday afternoon. This is not with the women. This is not with a small group. This is Jesus' disciples, his closest friends, his closest followers are together. And Jesus appears in their midst, and he greets them with the standard Jewish greeting. He greets them the way he would have greeted them thousands of times in their lives. He says, peace be with you. That's the way he would have said hello every time he saw them. But I believe this time it meant more than ever before, right? Because they have been through all the turmoil anyone could imagine. They've been through all the trouble anyone could imagine. They thought he's dead and gone and never returning. And he shows up and says, peace to you. Peace to you. Jesus is the one who brings peace. They also thought they were seeing a ghost. Did you notice that in the text? No one is expecting to see Jesus in the flesh. They thought they were seeing a ghost. And then he says, why are you troubled? Why are you troubled? Why are you troubled? You got reason to be troubled? Plenty, right? Plenty of reason to be troubled in this world. We lose our jobs. We lose our families. 
We lose our health, fall apart. This world is full of death and trouble, right? Why are you troubled? You've got every reason to be troubled. But like we sang a little while ago, in Jesus, we have victory. He wears the victor's crown. Every time I try to write that in my notes, it said he wears the doctor's crown. No, he doesn't wear the doctor's crown. He wears the victor's crown. He has overcome the world. And so all the trouble that you have, you take it to him. And he gives you freedom. He gives you deliverance. He gives you victory because of his victory. Does that make sense to you? Why are you troubled? And why do you doubt? You got doubts in your mind? Maybe that's why you're here today. Maybe you've heard this story a hundred times and you see people who claim to be Christians living in the world and you've got all kinds of doubts. I think the fact that the tomb is empty should be, should be the answer to all of your doubts. The tomb is empty. He is alive. All of the claims he made, he has affirmed in his resurrection. Why are you troubled and why do you doubt? And then I love the part where he says, you got anything to eat? Is that weird? All of this, like, revelation of himself. Peace be to you. Why are you troubled? Why do you doubt? Got anything to eat? <laughs> you know what that means? It means he really is alive. He's not a ghost. He's not a specter. He's not a spirit. He's a man risen from the dead with flesh and bones who is constantly hungry in those four days, 40 days. When you read the accounts of Jesus' resurrection and his life with his disciples in those 40 days, he is always eating something to affirm that he really has defeated death. He really has defeated sin. He really has risen again. So why? Why are you troubled? Why do you doubt? He really lives. And because he really lives, this gives us comfort. This gives us peace. This gives us hope. And we can trust in him. He's the only one we can trust in, right? Last scene, Acts chapter 1. Turn there. Acts chapter 1. This is what we talked about earlier. Jesus has died for our sins on the cross. He's been buried. He's been raised the third day according to the scriptures. He spends these 40 days with his closest friends. And not just his closest friends, but sometimes large crowds. At one point, he appears to over 500 people at one time, the scripture tells us. So the resurrection appearances of Jesus are not isolated incidents. But now he's going to be taken back up into heaven. And this is what he says. This is what God's word says in Acts chapter 1. Start in verse 9. It says, After he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received, them out of their, received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going back, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They, they also said, Men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. I love these angels. We talked about this in our Sunday school class too. I think they just walk around like face palm the whole time. Why are you in the cemetery looking for Jesus? Why are you standing there looking in the sky? What are you people doing? What are you people thinking? I think there are two big ideas we want to take away from this particular scene. You get it? That they see Jesus go back up into heaven, and they're just standing there like, this is incredible. We're just going to stand here. And then the angels show up, and I've got to expect that they, they come stand beside one of them and are like, why are you standing there like that? Right? First big idea. Jesus is alive. He's gone back to heaven. 
But one day, he's coming back. That's what we see in this text, right? This Jesus who's taken up from you like this, he'll come again just like this. We sang about that a minute ago, right? He's coming back. That's the one big idea. Second big idea, though, is our application for the day. Jesus had just told them, just before this whole scene happened, he said, you'll receive power. He says to his disciples, his friends, his followers, he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Which verse did we start reading in? Do you remember? Verse 9, right? It's where we started this story. Verse 8 says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the very last thing Jesus said to them. And then he was taken up into heaven. And then the angels come and say, why are you guys standing there looking up to heaven? He gave you a job. He gave you a mission. He gave you something to do. You can't just stand here looking up into heaven. Go tell Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised the third day. Folks, we cannot just sit here. We cannot just sit here like this for the rest of our lives. We can't just gather in this room for the rest of our lives and sing songs like we have sung today. We cannot just sit here and gaze up into the heavens. He has sent us out to tell the world because there are people that don't know. And there are people in Harrisburg that don't know. They're not just people in Africa and Asia who don't know. There are people in Harrisburg who don't know about this. And we must tell them, why are you standing there? I think we need to hear that word from the Lord today. Maybe we need to hear those angels say directly to us, why are you just standing there? Why are you just sitting there? Go tell somebody about Jesus. Don't just stand there with your eyes up to the sky. A couple of applications today. In review, number one, why did the Father forsake the Son? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did the Father forsake the Son? Because He took our sin, the Son took our sin, and suffered the consequences that we deserve as our substitute. Why did the Father forsake the Son? Because He stepped in as our substitute. He died for us. Number two, why would we seek the living among the dead? We wouldn't. We wouldn't seek the living among the dead, and we wouldn't seek Jesus in a cemetery because he's not a dead man. He lives, and he rose in victory over sin and death. You realize that's the deal on Easter Sunday morning, right? It's not just this miraculous man who lives again. He has conquered death and sin and hell. He rose in victory. He wears the victor's crown. Number three, why are you troubled? Why would we be troubled and why would we doubt? Jesus has overcome the world. He wears the victor's crown. He alone can rescue us. He alone can redeem us. He alone can save us. So what do we do? If this is all true, if Jesus died for us, if he was raised from the dead for us, if he is the victor and he overcomes, what should we do? Scripture says we should repent of our sins and believe in him. Scripture says we should turn away from our sins and trust in Jesus to save us. You see, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not about working your way up to heaven. If you're here today and think that somehow being here scores you points with God, and that maybe when you die your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds, you will go to hell with that mentality. No one goes to heaven because their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. Because no one's good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. The only way we have salvation is by trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. Trusting that he did take our sins. 
trusting that he did die as our substitute, trusting that he did rise again, trusting that he is the victor and gives us victory as a gift by trusting in him. Last application is, why would we just stand here looking up into the sky? Church, this is for you. You guys that are following Jesus, this is for you. Don't just stand here. Don't just sit here. Don't just sing the songs. Don't just celebrate the resurrection. Go tell the world. Maybe let me say it like this. Just tell somebody. Just somebody. Not, not, even, not even the whole world. Just tell somebody. That'd be more than 80% of folks are doing now. Let's just tell somebody about Jesus today. And maybe you'll have an opportunity in 10 minutes. 10 minutes from now when we walk out of this place and a lot of you are going to family celebration, some kind of dinner where there'll be a lot of people around the table. Maybe there are people there that don't know about Jesus. And you tell them. Start there. My Sunday school teacher today said, said the most profound thing. He said, I grew up in a home where I know I know that folks knew about the story, but we didn't talk about the story. Parents, listen. If you've got little kids in your house, tell them the story today. Make sure they know that this day is not about a bunny and chocolate eggs or anything like that or new clothes, that it's about Jesus who died for our sins and rose again. Tell them that story today. Amen? Let's stand together and pray. God, we believe. We believe that Jesus died for us. We believe that Jesus overcame death. We believe Jesus lives. We believe Jesus can save us. He alone can save us. We believe that. And we want to believe that. And we want to tell the world about that. We want to announce that to the nations, to our neighbors, to our little children that live in our houses. We want to tell them that Christ died for our sins, that Christ was buried, and that Christ was raised the third day. Christ can save us because of his victory. We want to tell the world that. Help us to do that. God, we also recognize that in a room like this, there are people who don't believe it. They don't believe it. They don't believe that Jesus died for us. They don't believe that Jesus rose again. They don't believe that he can save. I remember when I didn't believe I remember how you taught me all these truths. You opened my eyes. You opened my heart to this message. You turned the lights on for me. And I pray, God, I pray that you'll do that for men and women and boys and girls in this room today. That you'll open their eyes. That you'll open their ears. That you'll open their hearts. That you'll turn the lights on for them today. Teach them that Christ died for them. Teach them that Christ rose again from the dead. Teach them to repent and believe and be saved. God, grant it. Grant it to them by your grace, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.